I'd invite you to open your Bibles and turn with me to Luke chapter 17. Luke chapter 17. Thankful for the opportunity to preach this morning. Uh, God has spoken in my prayers that this morning he would open our hearts and our eyes and our ears to his gospel today. This section in Luke is a famous section. Uh, Perhaps it's most famous for the fact that there were uh, 10 men, 10 lepers who were healed, and there's only one who returns to say thanks. There were 10 men who were healed, but only one who returns to say thanks. This story is a powerful story of healing by the Lord Jesus. This is one which shows profound thankfulness by this one man. Conversely, it shows profound ungratitude and unthankfulness by another man, by the other nine. But I'd submit to you today, what you're going to see, the meaning of this story is not actually found in the thankful versus the unthankful. And you'll see as we get into it. But I need you to first look at the context of the story. We're in the gospel of Luke. Okay, Luke is one of the 12 disciples, a partner with Jesus and eyewitness to these events. Author of the gospel, as well as the book of Acts. Okay? In this gospel, Luke is writing from a unique vantage point. He desires, one, to write it out for you in orderly sequence, okay? These other gospels are written in all uh, kinds of different ways, not necessarily chronological order, but at the very beginning of Luke's gospel, he says that uh, it's in chronological order so that the reader can understand Jesus' life in context, okay? He's going to give you a detailed pattern of life, going to take you from the beginning all the way to the end of crucifixion. Number two, he's also a doctor, okay? Luke is a doctor. He understands the greatness of Jesus healing people as he has medical knowledge, okay? So when we're looking at lepers, this man had encountered leprosy. He'd seen leprosy before. Three, a major theme in this gospel is that Jesus came to seek and to save that which was lost. He came to seek and to save that which was lost. You find this in chapter 19 and verse in chapter 15. Okay. Often the people that were saved were the outcasts of society, Gentiles, Samaritans, women, tax collectors, and lepers. So as you approach this text, you're going to expect to learn something, but I want you to expect to learn something that Jesus is savior. Jesus is Savior. You'll see Jesus expressing his deity by performing great miracles. You're going to see him heal people. You're going to see profound thankfulness expressed by one man. You're going to see a terrible error of unthankfulness by nine other men. But what you see above it all is that Jesus is the Savior and that he gladly saves all those who come to him. So I want you to examine the text with me. Open your Bibles, Luke 17, starting at verse 11. We're going to read all the way down to verse 19. And it happened while he was on the way to Jerusalem, as he was passing through Samaria and Galilee. And as he entered a village, 10 leprous men who stood at a distance met him. And they raised their voices saying, Jesus, master, have mercy on us. And when he saw them, he said to them, go and show yourselves to the priests. And it happened that as they were going, they were cleansed. Now, one of them, when he saw that he had been healed, turned back, glorifying God with a loud voice, and he fell on his face at his feet, 
giving thanks to him. And he was a Samaritan. Then Jesus answered and said, Were there not ten cleansed? But the nine, where are they? Was there no one found who turned back to give glory to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, Stand up and go. Your faith has saved you. You have just heard directly from God. The word which we have read is literally breathed out by him. It should be taken as such. Let's examine the text. Verse 11. And it happened while he was on the way to Jerusalem. He was passing through Samaria and Galilee. Like I said before, Luke's account is an orderly account. Okay? This is Jesus' trip to Jerusalem. Jesus' trip to Jerusalem begins all the way back in chapter 9. Chapter 9, verse 51. So he's going to begin his journey to Jerusalem. The end point is Jerusalem. And, and there's a large group along with Jesus at this point. It says many crowds were going along with him on this journey. That's in chapter 14, verse 25. So he's likely not alone. He's teaching the multitudes what it means to be a disciple and a follower of Jesus as he's going. He does this through telling parables. He does this through stories. Uh, he's doing miracles. He does five of them in this journey. And he's teaching them the gospel. They're only a few stops away from Passion Week. And you'll notice that the author says, and it happened that while he was on the way to Jerusalem. This is not used in this section except back at the very beginning. Okay, in chapter 9, it says he's going to Jerusalem. It hasn't mentioned it. He says, and he did this, and he did that, and he's doing this. But now it says again, he's going to Jerusalem. Why? Because the author wants you to see that where this man is going is to Jerusalem. What's going to happen in Jerusalem is going to be the beginning of Passion Week. It's going to be the beginning of the Lord Jesus Christ being crucified for our sins. Here's the Savior portrayed as going to Jerusalem for the purpose of saving sinners. He's not primarily coming to do healing. He's not primarily to do some kind of social change. Rather, he's coming to seek and to save that which was lost. He's going to pay the penalty for sin. He's going to come to save sinners. Not those who are righteous, but he's coming to save sinners. So in this story, most people think about thankfulness, and rightfully so. This is, there is great thankfulness found in this story. But I want to submit to you, it's much more than thankfulness. The story is going to show you something about the person and work of Jesus as Savior. This will show you something of God's love for sinners. And it's going to show you something about Jesus as Savior. In the second half of that verse, it says, as he was passing through Samaria and Galilee. This was an uncommon practice. The Jewish people avoided traveling through the area of Samaria as there was great hostility between them and the Jews. Okay, they weren't commonly associated with each other. But Jesus is going straight through this area. He's going through them both. It may seem small and insignificant, but we'll see more of this later. So that's the introduction of this story. And then he gets into it. Point number one, if you're taking notes, point number one, the 10 cry for mercy. Point number one, the 10 cry for mercy. And you'll see this in verses 12 and verses 13. Verses 12 and 13. It says, and as he entered a village, 10 leprous men who stood at a distance met him. And they raised their voices saying, Jesus, 
Master, have mercy on us. First, what you have to do is you have to understand what leprosy is like. It says there's 10 leprous men. Okay, in Numbers chapter 12, Aaron describes leprosy as half the flesh eaten away. To be a leper was, was a miserable condition. It's often described as your flesh is falling off. Your skin is no longer there. Your open flesh, open sores, perhaps even down to the bone. Your just body is covered in skin disease. And there's different levels to it. But another thing is commonly uh, you'd lose numbness. Numbness to, to your hands and your arms and your feet so that as you would hurt something, you wouldn't feel it. So if you're going to reach into something that's hot, like boiling water or a fire, you wouldn't feel that's hot and pull your hand back. So you may leave your hand in there and your hand is burning and you don't know it. Or you can poke yourself with something and puncture your skin. You can step on a nail and you don't feel it. So as you're hurting yourself, you don't feel the pain and you're slowly, numbly, whittling yourself away. You have open flesh and it does not heal. It's a miserable condition. It's a brutal disease. And it was also contagious. And the Lord gave instructions in the law back in the Pentateuch to, to keep these people outside of the camp. In Leviticus 13 and 14, God gives two full chapters. These are long chapters about what to do with a leprous man or a leprous person. He tells them to, to put him outside the camp. And there's a whole way to go through it with the priest checking if this is leprosy, when it's healing, when it's not, what to do with this person. It's so brutal also that Yahweh punished a king with it in the Old Testament in 2 Kings 15. It's one of the worst diseases you could get. So as you come, verse 12, as he entered a village, the name of the village is not given, but what you should note is that Jesus had not yet entered the village. Why? Because there's leprous men here. It's not that they're living in the suburbs of the city. No, they're outside the camp, outside the walls. Jesus sees them before he enters. This is not a good place to be. They were at a distance because they were unclean. Now, the physical pain of a leper is great as your body literally whittles away slowly. But you have to understand what the life of a leper was like. Imagine extreme quarantine. You guys all of a sudden know about quarantine in these last couple of years, but this isn't quite like COVID quarantine, okay? Over break, my family all had COVID. We got it before Christmas. I think I already had it. I was the only one who didn't show symptoms. But all six of the other people in my family, they all had COVID, uh, and they were, they were down and out for about a week. So over Christmas, like many of you, we had lots of plans to do. We had different parties and get-togethers. People were supposed to come over to our house. We were supposed to go over to other people's houses. We wanted to go to church. All these things, and we couldn't do that. We were stuck inside as a family. We had to cancel a few parties, a few get-togethers and other things. We just couldn't do these things. In fact, our cousins from Ohio, who we hadn't seen in two years, and our grandparents down in Florida, we were all coming to meet together. But because of that, we didn't want to do it inside, so it adjusted our plans. We had to meet we met at like a park halfway, trying to do a little bit of distancing and outdoor air for the grandparents and all that. In summary, it was not fun, but a benefit was at least we got some good family time, right? You're, you're at home, you're stuck at home, you can't go visit other people, but you're with your own family. It's not the end of the world. I mean, I hadn't seen my parents in six months. It was great to be with them. Leprosy in the Bible is not like that. 
Okay, leprosy quarantine is much different. Described in two full chapters in Leviticus, it's the worst part of the disease. First, when you're diagnosed with it, you have to call out in public shame, unclean, I'm unclean to all those around. So there's no question whether you have it. You're unclean and you're headed out of the camp. No one can come near you. There's shame. And second, there's extreme isolation. You're forced outside the camp, away from all community. If you're part of a family, if they don't have leprosy, they don't go with you. You're just going out yourself. You're out of the community. You're out of your family. You're out of religious gatherings. You're out of all things. Not just for two, day, two weeks or 14 days or five days now or whatever it is, but until it gets better, oftentimes it didn't and you'd be out for life. This is not a temporary quarantine where you're with your community. This is eternal quarantine. You're out. This is an awful sentence for those who are lepers. Not the only community these lepers had now is from each other. So as you're going through Samaria, Jews and Samaritans and all kinds of people, these lepers, they were likely make, made up these 10 men in this group because the only community which lepers had is other lepers. You're outside of society. You're outside of life. The only people you have is other lepers. These differences were set aside because they only had each other. So as you see these 10 lepers, it's likely a miserable bunch, a motley looking bunch, but they had quite the reaction to Jesus coming. Okay, verse 13. And they raised their voices saying, Jesus, master, have mercy on us. Now you might question, why do these lepers and outcasts call out to Jesus? How do they even know Jesus? Well, I want you to turn back, flip back with me to Luke chapter 5, earlier in the gospel. Okay, Luke chapter 5, Beginning at verse 12, Jesus has already encountered a leper before. Okay. Luke chapter five, verse 12. And it happened that while he was in one of the cities, behold, there was a man covered with leprosy. And when he saw Jesus, he fell on his face and begged him saying, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. And he stretched out his hand and touched him saying, I am willing be cleansed. And immediately the leprosy left him. Jesus directed him to tell no one, but to go and show himself to the priest, which is the way you were cleansed, and make an offering for your cleansing, just as Moses commanded as a testimony to them. But the news about him was spreading even further, and large crowds were gathering to hear him and to be healed of their sickness. So the, the word about him is just spreading. This man is cleansing even lepers. So you can imagine maybe someone going into the city, you don't know, told these lepers about this man, Jesus. Word is spreading everywhere. Maybe it got to these lepers. This Jesus, he's causing the blind to see. He's causing the deaf to hear. He's causing the lame to walk. He's even raising people from the dead. And he's already healed a leper. If you guys see this, Jesus, call out to him. Maybe he's your hope to rid yourself of this leprosy. So when Jesus approaches, likely with a large group, these men stand to meet him. They see Jesus He's the potential answer to their problem. He's the potential solution to their situation. He's the medicine to their sickness. He can be their healer. So they call out, as it says back in verse 13, Jesus, master, have mercy on us. Not quietly. These men are calling out for mercy. In summary, point one, the 10 cry for mercy. 
These 10 men correctly identify Jesus as the one who is able to give them healing. Jesus hears them. You can take great hope if Jesus gives attention to the sinful, broken, and outcasts of society as he's going to the cross to Jerusalem, as Passion Week is awaiting him. He is surely able to do that today as well. If you call to Jesus, he hears you and he will answer you. This leads us to point number two, verse 14. Jesus sends the 10 to the priests. Point number two, Jesus sends the 10 to the priest. Point number one is they cry for mercy. Point number two, they send the 10 to the priests. And I'll read verse 14. When he saw them, he said to them, go and show yourselves to the priests. And it happened that as they were going, they were cleansed. Jesus' response is interesting. He simply says, hey, lepers, go to the priests. Go see them. What are you talking about? Well, in Leviticus 13 and 14, the priests were the health inspectors. How do you get cured of leprosy? How can you say, okay, you're back in society? You had to show yourself to the priest. So if you're a leper and you became healed, you'd go to the priest and this person would determine if you were clean or not. According to the word of the Lord, the Lord gives all kinds of instructions about the healing process and the flesh and all of it. There were specific instructions to be followed. These lepers understood this. And I will say these lepers trusted Jesus. It doesn't say anything about an interaction. It just says, Jesus says, go, show yourselves to the priests. And the next thing, as it happened, as they were going, they're going. They trust Jesus. They begin their journey to the city and the priests. I don't know if these men trusted Jesus for salvation or anything, but you can at least say they understood that Jesus had power. They understood he was the one who could heal them. And so they obeyed. They knew Jesus had healed a leprous man before. And it says, as they were going, they were cleansed. It's unlike a lot of miracles that Jesus had. In other miracles, you see him touch someone. You'll see him say it, and it'll be an instant healing. But in here, imagine, you're covered in leprosy, sores everywhere, fingers probably down to the bone, and you're walking, and all of a sudden, you become cleansed. Your skin is healing up. It's becoming new again. Your fingers and your toes are whole and, and you're cleansed. It's just as they're walking, they look around at the other people, their sight is restored. They look at the other people and they're cleansed as well. And you're looking around, you can imagine the joy they had. These outcasts of society who are condemned possibly for life now have another chance. They're headed back into society, cleansed of the disease, new life. They can see their family again. You can hug your, hug your children, kiss your wife. You're back into society. Your reputation is fixed. You're no longer unclean. Summary of point number two, Jesus sends the 10 to the priests. And they were healed. Now the last point, point number three, and we have the most work to do here. One man is saved. Point number three, one man is saved. This is verse 15 all the way down through 19. At this point, all the lepers have acted in unison. He's just described them as the 10, the 10, the 10. But now one is going to distinguish himself. Verse 15 and verse 16. Now one of them, when he saw that he had been healed, turned back, glorifying God with a loud voice 
and he fell on his face at his feet, giving thanks to him. And he was a Samaritan. So now there's a distinguishing among these ten. Nine men continue to the temple. They're headed to the priests. They're going to offer sacrifices. They're back in the society. But one man recognizes what has happened. You know, he says, being declared clean by the priest, that can wait. Offering sacrifices in the temple, that can wait. Reuniting with my family, that can wait. Going back in the community, that can wait. Why? Because he's realized that he just came into contact with the Lord Jesus, God in human flesh. And he had to turn back and give glory to God for the healing which had been given him. And his joy overflows. He turns back and he glorifies Jesus. It says, with a loud voice, not with timidity, not ashamed of Jesus, but for all to hear. Glory to Jesus. Thank you, Savior. And he bows down with his face to the ground, prostrate before the Lord, offering all the praise which is due him. I want you to notice the two things which he does. The two action verbs in here are these two. He, one, turns back in verse 15. That turning back is described glorifying God. And then number two, he fell on his face at his feet, described by giving thanks to him. Okay, this isn't primarily a move of thankfulness, but it's one of worship. An expression that this man desires to make Jesus Lord. He turns back and he bows on his face at his feet. Bowing on your face is not something you do to everyone. That's something reserved to do to God and to kings normally in the scriptures. You don't see that to other people. This leper realized that he had encountered God in the flesh. He's seen the power of him to heal. And his response is one to bow before the king, prostrating himself at the feet of Jesus. It's similar to the response of John. In John, uh, in Revelation 1.17, when John sees the Christ, he fell at his feet like a dead man. He had encountered the Christ and gives the right response. You bow, you give glory, you give thanks, and you worship before him. Then almost as an afterthought, it says, and he was a Samaritan. Okay, in the Greek, it's kind of separated off from everything else. It's narrative, narrative, narrative. Uh, he turned back, glorifying God with a loud voice, fell on his feet, giving thanks to him. And then it's, and he was a Samaritan, kind of separated. This man was the most unlikely person of the group to come back. doesn't say this explicitly, but it, it seems to imply that the other men were likely Jews or other people. They weren't Samaritans. And these Jews who the people of God, knew all the things of God, failed to see that they had just been healed by Jesus and that he deserved to be worshipped. They go headlong back to the temple. They say, we're going to get cleansed. We're going to go into the temple. We're going to offer sacrifices. We'll worship God there. And what they fail to realize is Jesus is right behind them. The king of the universe, the God of glory is right there and they miss it. What you can see is the kingdom is full of unlikely converts. The kingdom is full of men who bow the knee to God. Your church, your family, your history don't matter. Your response to the offer of Jesus is all that matters. This Samaritan was healed because he turned to Jesus. Jesus then responds to this worship and this thanks of men by asking a couple of questions. 
He doesn't give glory to this man for worshiping. That was the expected response. When Jesus heals you, your expected response is you would bow down and worship to him. We just ask a couple questions, the rhetorical in nature. Jesus answered and said, we're not 10 cleansed, but the nine, where are they? Was there no one found who turned back to give glory to God except this foreigner, the Samaritan, no one else? I thought there were 10. There's only one. These other men had experienced the exact same healing, these nine others. Jesus asks aloud why they hadn't come back. They ought to have come back. Jesus had just healed them. More than that, he's the son of God. Here's the point of this. Here's an example of what it looks like to someone to love the healing more than the healer. You love the healing more than the healer. These men cared more about their own disease being healed than about the Son of God choosing to have kindness on them in their miserable state. They loved what Jesus did for them more than Jesus himself. So the simple question I have for you is, do you love what Jesus can do for you more than who Jesus is? If you flip over to John, John chapter 6, if you go forward a little bit. John chapter 6. Another famous parable. John 6, at the beginning, your heading probably says something like Jesus feeds the 5,000. And if you know this story, there's 5,000 people. He's teaching, they're hungry, there's no food. And they find out that one man among them has five loaves and two fish. Now, 5,000 people. 5,000 people is like the size of Grace Church on a Sunday morning. Both services. Almost as big as Grace Church. A ton of people. And they have five loaves of bread and two little fish. Let's read about it. What does Jesus do? Chapter 6, verse 11. Jesus then took the loaves. Having given thanks, he distributed them to, all, to those who were seated. Likewise, also of the fish. As much as they wanted. And when they were filled, 5,000 people filled, a clear miracle, undoubted miracle, all could tell. He said to his disciples, gather up the leftover pieces so that nothing will be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with pieces of the five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. Therefore, when the people saw the sign which he had done, they were saying, truly, this is truly the prophet who has come into the world. When this thing happened, they said, yep, that's Jesus. He's the one. This is the prophet who's come into the world. He has miracle power. It's attesting to his deity. Keep reading in the chapter though. John 6, chapter tw- or verse 25. And when they found him, he walks on the sea, goes over to the other side. And when they found him, these other disciples, this multitude with him, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? What does he respond in 26? Jesus answered them and said, Truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw the signs that I did, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. These men didn't care about Jesus. They just wanted to be full of bread and fish. They just wanted to eat and satisfy their appetite. These men love the benefits of Jesus, but not Jesus himself. And sure enough, 
at the end of John 6, in verse 66, says, as a result of this, many of his disciples went away and were not walking with him anymore. When push came to shove and life became difficult, these men, they had no love for Jesus. They only had a love for what Jesus could give them. They missed the entire point of the miracles. The whole point of the miracles is to point them to Christ, that he is the Savior. He's the one who can bring ultimate healing and forgiveness, who can give you the bread that truly satisfies you. Instead, they settled for the simple blessings of some physical healing or food. Back to Luke 17. If you look back at the beginning, their first interaction with him. These lepers, these nine and ten, even call him master. It says, Jesus, master, have mercy on us. If you look at this in the New Testament, this isn't what most people call Jesus. Normally it's like uh, rabbi or teacher or even Lord, but master is different. Only his disciples use that term in the New Testament. It's extremely rare. These men claim close proximity to Jesus and knowledge of Jesus. They called him by one of his intimate names that his close disciples know. And Jesus comes through and he heals them. But then as soon as that's done, they no longer act as if he's Lord. You can call Jesus Lord. You can experience the power of Jesus, the healing of Jesus, the goodness of Jesus, and yet it can leave you unchanged towards him. It's an attitude of, I got what I needed, I'm out, I'm gone. You gave me what I wanted, I no longer have leprosy, I'm back in society, goodbye. I don't need to worship you, I don't want anything to do with you, I'm gone, I'm out. You can call him Lord, Lord, and have no knowledge of him. He does not know you. It makes me think of, College football. (laughs) A lot of things make me think of football. But college football players. Penn State played in a bowl game. It was an honor. Not all teams get to play in a bowl game after all. And one of the things I realized is that we're playing, and some of our best players throughout the year aren't playing in the game. They're not there. Where are they? In college football, guys who realize that they can go to the pros will sometimes bail on the last game of the year. There's a regular season and then there's a bowl game, a celebration of the year, a a, a chance to celebrate all that you've done together as a team. And and these players who realize they could be a high draft pick, they just leave early. They abandon the team and they're off to the NFL. They say, you know what, that last game, I'm I'm not interested. I'm, I'm gone. Going to the NFL, you guys can play that game without me. I may be one of your best players taking you to where we've come, but I, I'm, I, I, gotta, I gotta go. You gave me the platform to show off my skills. Why people want to draft me is because I played for you, but I'm, I'm gone. You guys can do that. I got what I needed. I'm out. That's the attitude. I, don't want, I wouldn't want to risk injury. I'm, I'm out. And, and it's a turning your back on the team. Let me say something to you. Football is one thing. To say, I got what I need. I'm out. To turn your back on the offer of what the Lord Jesus Christ has done and not give him any glory or thanks is a whole nother thing. And an absolute travesty if you do that. This lack of thankfulness that these people display. Lack of thankfulness is also a theme in Romans 1. 
I got to preach on Romans 1 a long time ago. You probably don't remember that, uh, but Pastor John's done it as well. Romans 1, 21 talks about like the society of the earth, fa- pagan society falling apart as they deal with their sin, as they abandon God. But I will say this unthankfulness is the very beginning stages of unbelief. Romans 1, verse 21, it's after they say, we saw God, we know him, his divine attributes. It says, Romans 1, 21, for even though they knew God, so they know who God is, they did not glorify him. They did not glorify him or give thanks. They know God, but they don't glorify God or give thanks. Instead, they became futile in their thoughts and their foolish hearts were darkened. They say, we see the goodness of God. We see it in creation. We see his power. That's great. Thank you. You don't need any glory. You don't need any thanks. I'm out. This chapter details what the pagan world is like, and it begins by stating that all men know about God, but they don't glorify him, and they don't give thanks. They know Jesus, but they refuse to honor him. Go back to these lepers. Jesus is there. He's blessed them. The only proper response is to turn and glorify him and offer thanks, but they fail to do it. I would suggest it's because of their unbelief. And here's why I say that. Verse 19, how does the story end? And he said to him, Jesus said to the leper who came back, stand up and go. Your faith has saved you. I don't know what word your translation uses there at the end, but that word saved you is a different word than he's used earlier. Luke, who's a doctor, he understands these terms and what it means to be healed. In verse 15, he says that you were healed. He doesn't say that again, not that word. In verse 17, it says, we're not 10 cleansed. He's not using cleansed, but he goes saved in this verse. Sozo. It's the New Testament term to describe when people obtain salvation. This leper already had cleansing. He already had healing, but now he gets something totally different in nature. He gets salvation. He's not healed. He's not cleansed, but he's saved. Remember the response of this man. When he's been given the healing of leprosy, what's he do? He does two things. He turns back glorifying God and he bows down, giving thanks. Here's a man who has made Jesus the king in his life because he recognized that Jesus is the savior. This is Luke's whole point. The foreigner who came back got what the other nine did not get. Those nine got their healing, but he gets much more than that, and he has to give thanks. He got a spiritual healing, one which cleansed his sin. This isn't physical, but it's salvific. It's salvation that this man has obtained. This man received perfect salvation and assurance simply by coming to Jesus. Leprosy was bad. We've detailed leprosy. Leprosy is miserable. And it was a great hindrance to this man. But his greatest problem was not leprosy. This greatest problem is that he did not know the Christ. He needed his sins to be forgiven. And you can take that today. Your biggest issue is nothing in your life, nothing that's happened to you, but rather the things you've done, the sins you've committed. You need to know the Christ. Just like leprosy, sin is ruining your life. Sin makes you numb. Kind of like how the leprosy makes you numb. An illustration, if you, a frog, maybe you've heard this before, in hot water. 
if you have like hot boiling water and you put a frog in it, it jumps out right away. It knows it's hot. That's burning. Right to the touch, gone. Okay? It's going to hop out and go as far away as fast as it can. But when you put a frog in water that's normal temperature, if you would just heat it slowly, the frog wouldn't notice the change. They'd just become numb to their sin. And you could take it all the way up to boiling, and before the frog realizes that this water is hot, it's already too late, the thing's cooked. Okay, as you indwell in sin, you become numb to the harmful effects it has you. If you have not repented of your sin, and you're still in your sin, whether it be the culture, music, your hidden sin, I don't know what your sin is, but I do know that as you live in your sin, it makes you numb, and you don't see the damage always that it's doing to your life, but before you realize it, it's too late, you'll be cooked. You'll be out of time. Maybe you've come here for a long time. Maybe you've been in youth group and in grace for a long time. You enjoy the friends. The friends are great. You enjoy the fellowship. The donuts we get once a month. The donuts are great. The songs that we get to sing. They're fun songs to sing. They have great lyrics, but they're also fun songs to sing. Maybe the praise of man of being a good kid in church who wants to be thought of as righteous by their friends or their small group leader or their pastor or their peers. But if you don't have the Savior, you've missed the whole point. The whole point of this is that you don't need the good things Jesus can offer. You need Jesus himself and salvation. Those nine men left, healed of their leprosy, back into society, back with their family, back with their friends, back in their community, but they're still full of their sin. Just like the leprosy, Jesus is the one who can cleanse your sin. Jesus does not change. He's the same yesterday. He's the same today. He's the same forever. He can cleanse you. He can heal you. He can forgive you no matter what you've done, no matter who you are. If you bow the knee to him, if you turn and bow the knee to him, he will save you. And he'll give you the cleansing that's not physical, but he'll give you the cleansing that saves you, the one that gives you salvation, where you can know that you are saved, your sins are forgiven. You too can be saved. But for many of you that have received salvation, let this story drive you to worship the Lord with your life. I'm sure the other nine men were thankful. They're back into society. Life is so much better than before. They're not, no longer their flesh isn't falling off. Their hands aren't nubs. They're not out at the edge of society with only other lepers. They're back into society. It's great. I'm sure they were thankful. I'm sure they were grateful. But it's one thing to feel a little bit of gratefulness for what someone has done for you, a kindness, than it is to show this gratefulness and to be grateful for the person of Christ, not merely what he has done. The physical blessings of God are meant to lead you to glorify him. It's why we've gathered here today. The salvation which you have obtained, more the, the salvation you've obtained is why we're gathered here today. You have the salvation. What is your response? It's one of worship and praise and adoration and thanksgiving to him. It's why we sing the songs of praise. We express our thanksgiving to him. We cry out to him. We praise him for who he is and what he has done. Why? Because he's saved you. Is your life 
one of worship, such as the man who turned back? Do you fall at the feet of Jesus in submission and surrender to him, to the Savior? Not to the one who can cleanse your physical ailments, but to the one who can save your soul from death. I told you at the beginning of this passage that you're going to see something about Jesus as Savior. And here you've seen it now. You've seen in the passage that Jesus is the Savior. And I just question, do you bow and worship, giving the glory and thanks to him that he deserves? What do our lives, what are they supposed to live, look like? A living sacrifice. You're alive, but you offer your life to the Lord of one of thanksgiving and praise to him. Romans 12, verse 1, it says this. Therefore, I exhort you, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a sacrifice, living, holy, and pleasing to God. Take a look, listen to this last line, which is your spiritual service of worship. How do you worship and glorify and give thanks to the Lord? You live for him as a holy, pleasing sacrifice. So my question and encouragement to you is, do you delight or do you devote yourself to him with your whole life? Let him be Lord of your life. For the believer, do you cherish him as this man cherished the Lord Jesus Christ more than getting back into society? Do you glorify him unashamedly, giving glory and praise to the Lord for who he is and what he's done? Do you enjoy him more than any physical, earthly, temporal blessing, but because of who he is? Do you sit at his feet and listen to his word? Do you bow your face before him in reverence and honor to the one who can save? Let us pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this story of the Lord Jesus Christ, who not only offers physical healing, not only can cleanse these lepers of their sad state, but, but offers salvation to all who come to him. For this man who turned back bowing and worshiping, Lord, we give praise to you for that work you did. I pray for any here who has not bowed the knee, who has not come to the Lord Jesus for salvation, that you would save them. That they would know that if they just come to you, Jesus, as Savior, the one who can save sins, you will save them. And you will delight to give them eternal salvation, peace with you, and freedom from their sins. We thank you for this hope. We ask these things in your name. Amen.